It's Thursday, June 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. This summer will be very important in the fight against COVID-19. Three coronavirus vaccine candidates will be entering phase three of clinical trials in the race for an effective treatment. Each of these trials will involve tens of thousands of people, and researchers hope to get some results within six to eight months. Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the race to a vaccine. Next, news that we did not want to hear. Several states have seen an increase of coronavirus cases and hospitalizations following Memorial Day. Data from some of the states that are reporting some of their highest seven-day averages of new cases also suggest that the increases are not just due to more testing. What is more concerning is that some states are nearing hospital bed capacity. Jacqueline Dupree, who keeps track of coronavirus numbers for the Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, amid the pandemic and protests against police brutality, there are still elections happening. And in Georgia, Tuesday was a mess. People were waiting in lines over four hours to cast ballots. Some voting machines didn't work. There were provisional ballot shortages. And all this happened while trying to social distance. Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico, joins us for the chaos in Georgia and why people are concerned for November. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What I'm confident about is how well the process is proceeding in the development of more than one candidate. If we are in good shape and that happens, we could have a vaccine either by the end of this calendar year or in the first few months of 2021. Joining us now is Peter Loftus, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me on. This summer is going to be pretty important when it comes to coronavirus and making some headway on finally getting a vaccine in order. The last stage of testing for Moderna's vaccine is going to begin in July. We might have another one that starts in August and then beyond that in September. Peter, tell us about some of the developments with regards to vaccines. For the last several months, really since January and February, there have been a number of vaccine projects that have gotten off the ground. And In fact, I think there's more than 100 globally that are in development at some stage. But what we've seen, I think, in recent weeks is sort of the emergence of some front runners and some vaccines that, for a number of reasons, seem to be the closest to potentially being an answer to bringing the pandemic under control. And so some of the vaccines have already started studies in humans, clinical trials where researchers are testing whether people have the desired immune response to the virus and also testing whether it's safe. So the studies so far have been just a few and relatively small numbers, like in the hundreds or maybe in some cases a couple thousand patients. But those studies that have already started, they can only tell so much about a vaccine and whether it's going to be the answer. And so what you need are these really big clinical trials with tens of thousands of patients that will actually test not just whether a vaccine triggers an immune response in a person, but also whether then they are protected from the virus. And the way you do that is by running these big trials in which some patients will get the vaccine, some people will get a placebo, and then you kind of compare both groups. Did one group get infected at a certain rate and the other group got infected at a different rate? And so that will yield the more definitive answers about which vaccines work. They'll get the vaccine, obviously, to see if they can start getting that immune response, the antibodies and everything. But are they 
exposed to the virus after? Do they just live normal life and see if they get it or don't? How does that part of it work? I think they envision people getting vaccinated and then living their lives. And the idea would be that even though the peak of the virus, or at least the dramatic growth, seems to have flattened out, it's still spreading in the country. So the expectation is that once these trials get underway, they'll pick locations in the country where the average person who participates in these trials might have a chance of being exposed. And so they'll be able to see X number of people in the vaccine group ended up getting infected versus Y number of people in the placebo group. Phase three is the final phase of these, obviously the biggest one, as we've been talking about. But historically, a lot of vaccine candidates fail to make it through all the phases of these trials. Obviously, there's a ton of different candidates working on this. Does the one that gets it right first, is that the one vaccine that everybody's going to kind of take on to after? Because some of these others might prove to be very effective also. There seems to be a consensus that we're going to need several vaccines. And I think for a couple different reasons. One is the sheer number of people globally who will need to be vaccinated. It would be very hard for one company making one vaccine to make enough of that vaccine. So it would be helpful to have multiple options there. And then I think also there's a chance that these vaccines will perform differently in each of the trials. And so you could have one that maybe it's like 90% effective, and then you have another that's only 50 or 60%. And then you could have differences in terms of maybe one seems to help a certain subgroup of people more than another vaccine. So I think the first vaccine to get a definitive answer in one of these big trials about it being safe and effective, that would be a big moment. But I think there is an expectation that it's going to take more than that and that these continuing trials will also have to be watched to see what more we can add to the vaccine supply. The timeline on this is moving really fast comparatively to how vaccines are generally made and tested. But still, back to that timeline, researchers say that they hope they'll get answers from this next phase of it in six to eight months still. There is a little bit of a like a hurry up and wait aspect where even though things are moving fast, each time a vaccine then moves to the next stage, there has to be just some minimum period where it's going to take that time before researchers know with some degree of certainty whether a vaccine is safe and effective. And so I think with these big trials, just given the number of people that they need to enroll, that could take some time. And then I think they don't know at this point, say in August, what the transmission rate of the virus is going to be. And so that'll determine sort of the timing of how long it takes to know whether enough people were protected in the vaccine group compared with the placebo group. Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. We turn the dial as the data seems to support that. I think all of us are are watching uh, intently. 19 states are on the climb. Minnesota is not one of them climbing back up. Joining us now is Jacqueline Dupree. Jacqueline keeps track of all of the coronavirus numbers for the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jacqueline. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about the number of cases and hospitalizations that have started to rise in a lot of states. This is all after Memorial Day. We're about two, two and a half weeks after Memorial Day now, and we're starting to see these cases rise. And one of the interesting things that a lot of states are seeing is that it's not necessarily just because of increased testing. 
it just seems like we're starting to get more cases, possibly because as states have been reopening, uh, there's been a little more transmission there. Jacqueline, tell us about the numbers, please. As you said, we started seeing this really since kind of the beginning of June. We tend to track their average new case numbers over a seven-day period because the numbers are very noisy. So we have seen that the average of seven days worth of new cases have started just going up almost every day in states like North Carolina and South Carolina and Arizona and even Puerto Rico and some unexpected places like Utah and even Oregon. And so because the numbers are noisy, it was something to just kind of keep an eye on at first. But, you know, a sustained number of daily increases in an average definitely is getting our attention. And how do we know that these cases aren't just because of the increase of testing? Where do the numbers show that, you know, it's increased transmission of it? Some states like Utah are nice enough to tell us that Um, there was a tweet from Utah coalition that's handling all this saying the cases are on the rise here and it's not because of increased testing or a single outbreak. The numbers, as I think anyone who's been paying attention for the past few months, it is as much art as science because states report so differently in so many different ways. So for me, watching sustained day after day increases when we have been being told for a while that really testing is on the rise. So the first thing was to watch, obviously, these numbers keep going up and up. And then to kind of tie into the next part, it was like, well, so are hospitalizations starting to go up in any of these states? Because that kind of gets you past the number of, is this just increased testing versus, wow, this is clearly an increase in the number of people who are sick enough to be hospitalized compared to a few weeks ago. So that's what we've really seen, again, in Arizona and Texas and the Carolinas in particular, uh, some pretty clear increases in hospitalizations over the past couple of weeks. Let's break down some of the states. Texas has been seeing some increases, 36% increase in new cases since Memorial Day, and their bed capacity is starting to get pretty high as well. Texas has definitely been a state that we've been watching, and in fact, they've reported their numbers again already today, and current hospitalizations have gone up another 100 patients since yesterday, and they're now at about a 43% increase in current hospitalizations for COVID patients since Memorial Day. And they are starting to get to the point where they're continuing to have an eye on how crowded their hospitals are. Out of 56,000 staffed hospital beds, they're down to what they say is about 13,600 available beds across the entire state. And Arizona is another state that everyone's watching. And with their numbers that are out today on their website, they actually say that 83% of the inpatient beds across the state are currently in use. And even while their number of cases today went up yet again, they had an increase of another 1,500 new cases today, which is considerably above their seven-day average. And the Carolinas are also starting to pay closer attention to their capacity. North Carolina right now, they say that they only have about 22% of their inpatient hospital beds available. 
Now, even these numbers can be a little, again, noisy right. because not every hospital reports every day. Sometimes they just don't get a report from a hospital. So even these are just trying to watch trends. Texas, going back to them, they were one of the first states to relax their stay-at-home orders. And, you know, Memorial Day kind of marked this unofficial opening for a lot of places. People were pent up. They wanted to get out already. So a lot of them were moving out. And since then, a lot of states have started to relax their guidelines and let businesses reopen. So couple that with we've seen all the protests and unrest going on throughout the country. And that's been kind of a two-week thing as well. It could be possible that these numbers could continue to go up. So definitely something to keep an eye out for. As you mentioned, these numbers are so noisy and they just keep moving so fast right now. You know, I think we're just starting to get on to the edge of when the protest numbers would start to come out of the noise, because as they like to say, the case reports, you're seeing what was going on in the country one or even two weeks ago. And then hospitalizations can even be another week after that. So I have really just now with this week, I'm really starting to pay attention to the states with the largest number of protests to watch for those numbers, specifically, obviously, Minnesota, but also Washington, watching King County and Georgia, watching the Atlanta area and obviously the District of Columbia. And nothing has popped out just yet, but I would imagine that there will be an increase in cases. Jacqueline Dupree. Jacqueline keeps track of all of the coronavirus numbers for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jacqueline. Thanks for having me. And it is absolutely ridiculous coming out of 2016, specifically when there were so many questions about the integrity of our election to be here again in 2020 under these circumstances. Um, really, it, it's unacceptable. Joining us now is Zach Montalero, campaign reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Zach. Thanks for having me back. You know, amid all of the coronavirus news that's constantly going on and the protests and, and calls for police reforms because of the killing of George Floyd, we did have some election movement happening on Tuesday. Georgia and Nevada and a few other places were voting, but they were marred with a lot of different problems. The headlines for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution said it was a complete meltdown. Others said there was chaos in Georgia. It was uh, pretty crazy. There was a lot of issues with the voting machines, long lines, people waiting hours and hours just to vote, and you know the whole social distancing and everything like that. Zach, tell us a little bit about the problems that happened. So unfortunately, the problems in Georgia are not unique or new. They're not new for Georgia. I don't think I need to tell your listeners that Georgia has a fairly long and fraught history of protecting the voting rights of its citizens. So this is just merely another chapter in that book. But they're also not new. Every state so far that's really had to hold an election in the middle of this pandemic, that's had to hold a primary, has struggled mightily. I think Georgia is pretty an extreme example of that. We talked to some voters who waited upwards of six hours to cast wow. a vote in person. But this is just a problem we see with pandemic elections is that no one has really figured out how to do in-person voting safely and in a reasonable amount of time. They have closed a lot of polling places, so they're consolidating a lot of the sites. So there's going to be more people showing up to those sites. And there's not as many workers there, which could be a problem to help direct the flow. So basically everywhere has had to consolidate polling sites because think about your poll worker, right? When you go to vote, what you're probably picturing in your head is a little old lady or a nice retired old man who checks you in, who walks you through the process. Those are the people that are most accessible to the pandemic, most accessible to the virus. 
So those people have been dropping out. They're saying, I don't feel comfortable being a poll worker for good reason. The people places are losing poll workers. They have to consolidate voting sites. And then once you're actually in the voting sites, they still try their best to keep the CDC social distancing guidelines in mind. So that means less voting machines. That means cleaning down the machines after every voter. So this just really exacerbates any already existing problems. And everybody's thinking ahead towards November. Will we still be in this same mode with consolidated sites, uh, this, all this extra cleaning? There's been a lot of problems with mail-in ballots as well. And, you know, we all know the president has said he doesn't want a lot of mail-in voting because there's going to be a lot of fraud, even though there might not be evidence to suggest that. But these are all the issues that when a mess happens like this, let's say in Georgia, everybody right away starts thinking about November. Human behavior is shifting people to doing more mail-in balloting. I always go back to Wisconsin, which had its own problems. But Wisconsin functionally made no changes to its election laws. It did not even do what Georgia did. Georgia's Secretary of State sent every voter in the state an absentee ballot request form. Wisconsin did not do that. And it went from somewhere around the low single digits of people who actually vote by mail, usually, to in the 60% of people who voted by mail. That's just pure change in human behavior. So this is coming. This is going to happen. And it's just a big problem that part of this is just we have to be patient. We as the American citizens, the media has to be patient. It's going to take longer to count these absentee ballots. It just takes more time to count absentee ballots than it does to count votes in person. Back on those numbers, Georgia usually has about 40,000 mail-in voters. And as of Monday, they had 943,000 voters that had turned in an absentee ballot. So, I mean, that's a huge swell right there. And I'm sure a lot of states are going to be seeing some of that movement. And like you mentioned, just going beyond that to November, a lot more people are going to want to go that way. These are all primaries. The people who vote in primaries generally are more regular voters. They vote more frequently. They're used to this process. They're used to voting. Some of them are used to waiting in line. Their voters were more in tune with the process. Now go to November and just supersize this. These are going to be infrequent voters who don't vote in primaries, who don't even vote every election. They maybe only vote for the president and they skip the midterms, they skip the primaries. This problem is only going to get worse. Election officials need to figure this out. And right now, a lot of them are coming up empty. Some states are well prepared. A state like Washington, a state like Oregon, that has a long history of mail-in balloting that conduct their elections predominantly by mail already. They're going to be good. They're going to be fine. I'm not worried about Washington. I'm not worried about Oregon. I'm worried about Georgia. I'm worried about Michigan. I'm worried about New York, which has really no history of absentee voting. How do these states figure it out in five months? In Georgia, we were seeing a lot of blame being thrown around from Democrats to Republicans and vice versa. It's also a unique place, too, because for former Vice President Joe Biden, two of the people that might be on his VP shortlist are coming out of Georgia there. We have the Atlanta mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and then Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor in 2018, who's you know made a name for herself with voting rights and all. So an interesting place right there for this to happen. As you mentioned, they have a history of problems there, but nonetheless... Georgia has a long history of voting problems. To put it generously, we shall call it voting problems. But up until relatively recently, Georgia has not been a state on the national radar. Think about the problems, you know, when there's problems in New York. New York is largely overworked because New York is a safe Democratic seat for the Senate. It's always going to vote Democratic for the president, at least for the foreseeable future. These problems go unnoticed. But even if a voter is not in a swing state, these problems matter. Like Americans deserve the right to be able to cast a ballot pretty safely and not have to risk their health and or not be able to have to figure out this kind of convoluted mail process to do it. And election officials have largely come up empty. Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.